Welcome. We are in Romans, and we started this at the beginning of the year. We took a break for the summer. We started back in the fall. So we're three or four weeks back into Romans, and we're going to pick up in chapter 8. We went to verse 11 of chapter 8 last week. I'm going to pick up at 12, but I'm going to read a few verses from beforehand. Now, we looked at these earlier, but I, I, I want you to hear just some of the parallels. I'm not going to really preach from 5 through 8. I might refer to it, but... We'll pick up in verse 12. I don't know if you've seen this ad campaign. It's really, it's, it's really not so much been on TV as much as on social media, but it made a big splash. It was an ad campaign by Cheerios. And what they did was they kind of changed the game. So many ads and TV shows, they depict the mom as being sharp and organized and on top of things, and the dad's kind of a buffoon. And, and Cheerios did this ad, and it's about how great dads are. And, uh, and, and what dads are. And so this guy wakes up. There's a kid sitting on him in bed. And he has a, like a moose head on or something. And they just start from there. And this guy just starts to talk to the camera and walk through the house. He's talking to you as he's multitasking. But he's telling you about what dads are. And it's, 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 a, it's a fun commercial. But the interesting thing is he's telling you what dads are. But he keeps blurring into what dads do. Now, not to put too fine a point on it. Those are different things. What you are doesn't equal what you do. And I thought about that going just as I've been soaking in this passage because I've had this question posed to me. You may have had this question posed to you, and I'd be interested with how you would answer it. Here's the question, and I just want to give you a few seconds of silence to think about what would your answer be. The question is, what is a Christian? Just think for just a second. What is a Christian? And it's, it's very likely that whatever words you just started to form in your mind is something along the lines of a Christian is someone who, and it's what a Christian does, was the rest of the answer. L- let me tell you what I'd like to do this morning, and Lord willing, what we'll do next Sunday We're going to look at this same passage, Lord willing, next Sunday, and I want to talk more about what Christians do. There'll be a lot more um, application next week. But really what I want to highlight this morning is the main thrust of the passage, and it's not so much what Christians do. It's who Christians are. What is a Christian? Romans 8 Uh, starting first in verse 5, and then we'll really pick up in verse 12. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather together... In Jesus' name, we want to ask you now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading a book that I have been wanting to read for a while. It's been on my shelf, my to-read list for years, actually. And uh, it's a book written about uh, being a pastor. And uh, the, the author referenced another book that a friend of mine had told me about. I've never read this book. It, but it's by a Roman Catholic, uh, Catholic writer, thinker, uh, theologian named E. Michael Jones. And it's a book about the sexual revolution and really what, what came out of that and what that's done to our culture. But, uh, but this theologian said that this, the, the, the one writing the book about pastoring, he said that this Catholic theologian made a great point. He just brought all this information and sort of distilled it down to, to this point. He said, at the end of the day, here's what human beings do. They either conform their desires to the truth or they try to conform the truth to their desires. And that's really brilliantly put. Um, you either conform your desires to the truth or you try to conform the truth to your own desires. And here's the thing, just as we're sitting here this morning, if we were really honest, we might say, okay, from the way that you said that, I can tell that what, what's right and good is that we would conform our desires to the truth. But when we're just sort of doing life, what it can feel like is I want the truth to conform to my desires. I want it to conform to what I want. Now, some of you are new here. It may be your first morning here, but when we started this series on Romans, I quoted um, a writer named Oscar Wilde, an Irish uh, writer. And he said, you know what? I did that. And this was his own admission. He said, "I, I gave myself over to pleasure, and I quit playing around I quit doing that 60%, 70%. I mean, I threw the lever and I gave myself over to my desires and to my pleasure. And, the end, and the, he was not what we would call a you know, Bible-believing Christian, if you know anything about Oscar Wilde. And he said, and the net result when I did that was that I lost my life. I lost Oscar Wildness. I lost my heart. It was very eye-opening. Um, what I want to look at in this passage, these, these are going to be very simple sermon points. 
pre-Christian. And I want to say it that way rather than someone who just never becomes a Christian. Let's say pre-Christian. What do you have? And then the second point is a Christian. What are you? What do you have? Before we talk about what you do, what are you? What do you have just from being a Christian? And here's what I want you to think about. The kind of the bundle of terms that you hear on the first one are terms like flesh. If you haven't been here, I feel like I've got to repeat this. When Paul says flesh, overwhelmingly, he doesn't mean your, your, your skin, your physical bodily existence. He's talking about um, that, that thing in your heart that says, I don't need God and I don't want God. Someone who's not a Christian lives in that. They're in the flesh. Someone who is a Christian is in Christ, but there's still the presence, the, the annoyance of the flesh. It doesn't own you, but it makes its presence known. The bundle of terms you hear before being a Christian is flesh and slavery and death. And the bundle of terms that you hear for a Christian or spirit, and life, and being children of God. So let's look at those. First point, uh, pre-Christian. You know, I, we, we didn't spend a lot of time on these verses last week, but look in verses 5 and 6, because it uses this language of living according to and setting the mind on. Now again, we're not so much talking here about the person who's a Christian, who struggles with old tendencies, struggles with old habits, old ways of thinking. That's not so much what we're talking about here. We're talking about the person who's in the flesh, who's never been changed by the grace of God. Now look in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Look in verse 6. and This is fascinating. To set the mind on the flesh is death. And then look at the parallels in our passage. So then, brothers, and he's writing to Christians, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And then what does he say? Verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, and that's the life of the person in verses 5 and 6, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. If you live, think, you, know, you know what an ellipsis is? Like when you're writing and you leave a little chunk out and you put dot, dot, dot. Think about if you put an ellipsis in that sentence. If you live, dot, 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 you will die. That sounds like a contradiction, but he's saying this. If you do what Oscar Wilde did, if you say, look, I, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of church. I'm tired of God talk. I'm tired of rules. I'm tired of people over me saying how my life has to be. I want what I want, and I'm going to pursue what I want. If you give yourself over to that, you will, in one sense, be living. And what you will do is you will die. And the way Paul states it is that will have a present uh, manifestation and a future manifestation. Look in verse 6. Present and future. To set the mind on the flesh, present tense, is death. But then look down in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will, in the future, die. And he's not just talking about 
You physically die. Everybody physically dies. Christians physically die. Jesus experienced death. But he means death, death. To body and soul finally fall under condemnation and not be the person that you were created to be and not know the God that you were created to know. To sabotage one's own life and to fall into condemnation. Uh, I don't know if you saw this quote on the front of the bulletin. This is by a guy named Paul Tripp. He's a writer, counselor, speaker. And this is so well put. This was on a piece called The Insanity of Sin. The driven, watchful envy of a horizontal, pleasure-oriented heart will drive you crazy. It will not only rob you of your satisfaction and joy, it will take your humanity from you. And again, that's what blows me away about Oscar Wilde's testimony of his own life. He's not saying this as a converted person trying to speak into people's lives. He says as someone who's still not a Christian, I did this and it dehumanized me. You will become a hypervigilant observer of your own life and the lives of others. You will be an incessant pleasure-comfort accountant, measuring your experience of these things over against the experience of those around you. You will daily measure who has the biggest pile of pleasure, and you will not be happy if it's not you. It is socially acceptable madness. It cannot and will not ever work. It's death. Um, there can be moments of fun, but it's death. I mean, you think about it doesn't even ha- The flesh, living according to the flesh, it doesn't have to be something strong and splashy like murder. Uh, it can be just sort of these subtle things that we show up with, like that I have to be right. I have to be right. If, if, if someone's telling a story and they say, you know, about four months ago, and I know that it was five months ago, I have to correct them and say, no, it was five months ago. And that doesn't seem like a big, dark, sinister thing to do, but what slowly I'm doing is I have to be right. I can't say no to it. I can't, I can't tone it down. What is happening is I'm sabotaging every relationship around me. You know, because ultimately, if I have to be right, then, then God might be wrong. Because I'm right. But it could be something splashy, too. I mean, this could be a man in his 40s. 50s and just the weariness of life and the weariness of, let's say he's a family man, the weariness of children and the weariness of money and the weariness of work and the weariness of marriage and he's just kind of looking out the window and he's just kind of tapping his pencil on the desk and he's just trying to think about, could I get away with an affair? You know, that, uh, but there's a website I can go to that will arrange it all for me. And um, he starts to move toward it, not realizing that this is going to drop a bomb. Even if it's undiscovered, this is going to drop a bomb into your life and all these other lives around you. Now, we've spent a lot of time on these things, but, I mean, just let the record show that God is the God who is rescuing people from this. Do Christians still sin? Yes. Do Christians still sabotage our own lives sometimes? Oh man, we could all tell our stories. But God is not the great giant killjoy saying, ah, there's all these fun things they can do. Let me steal you away from that so you can go to Sunday school activities. 
He is rescuing us from flesh, slavery, death. Have you not felt like a slave before? Have you not felt like the weariness of not being who I wish I was? Has that not felt like a ball and chain? Well, what is a Christian? And really, this is so beautiful how all of a sudden the terms that you're getting are spirit, life, sons, children. Um, I, for some of the community group leaders, you may have seen this info. I sent this out last week, but I want to, I want to say it in front of everybody. The word spirit is only mentioned once in chapter 7. And it's mentioned over 20 times in chapter 8. It's like everything changes when you start talking about the work, not of my spirit, little s, but of the capital S spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Something we looked at last week is, wow, even though the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible, and even though the word Trinity is nowhere in Romans chapter 8, the Trinity, the, the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is all through this chapter, I've never noticed it like I've seen it as I've been working on this. Let's, let's break it down. I'm not going to go in the order of Father, Son, Spirit. Let's do Spirit, Father, Son. Mentioned once in chapter 7, over 20 times in chapter 8, and, and something that we said last week, when the whole, by the way, just so we're clear on this, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. He is the third person of the Trinity. He, he is equal in power and glory to the Father and the Son. He is fully God. As soon as he bursts on the scene, you just start hear, hearing about life. Where the Spirit goes, there's life. Life, life, life inside the believer. Now, sometimes in Scripture he's called the Spirit of God. Sometimes he's called the Spirit of Christ. He goes by these different titles... What does Paul highlight in this part of Romans 8? What, is, what does he call him? Look in verse 15. It says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. You could translate that, uh, the spirit of sonship. And then the next verse, Paul says, here's something that the Holy Spirit does if you are a Christian. Verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. Now, let me stop there. That's legal language. It's like the Holy Spirit as attorney. So what is He going to testify to? Because the Spirit knows our insides. So is He going to be the lawyer who says, well, there's all these secret sins that no one knows... And I will now proclaim what all the evidence file says against you. I'll now go into detail about your rap sheet. Is that, is that going to be what he witnesses to? Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That when God's mercy bursts into a person's life, and He rescues them from that old way of life. And He rescues them from being condemned. He rescues them from hell and washes them clean. He indwells. 
that man or woman. He lives inside that person. And he is the spirit of sonship, of childness. And he bears witness with our insides, not against us, but for us. This person is God's child. You are God's child. You are adopted. Now, if you've got adoption, you've got an adopter. And that's the father. And I do feel the need to say this from time to time, not to be the heavy, but to highlight how good the good news is. It's sort of fashionable to say uh, we're all God's children when that's not what the Scriptures say. It says we are all God's creation. And we all bear God's image. Every human being bears the image of God. But if we were all God's children, if we just showed up that way, it wouldn't be the huge deal it is in Scripture that He adopts us. He has to adopt us for us to be His children. Well, for the believer, for someone who is a Christian, you have been adopted. And here's what's great, because we're talking about what are you, not what will you do. The Scripture never says to the Christian... Aspire to be the child of God. Work to be the child of God. Look look in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit, and for Paul that just means for all who are Christians. For all who are led by the Spirit of, of God are sons of God. Look in verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And I, I want to I point out something really cool that Paul does here. He, he, he didn't first and foremost write this letter for downtown Prez. We're, we're the, we benefit from it, but he first wrote it to these Christians in Rome. And in this Roman congregation, you've got Christians, but you've got people who ethnically are Jewish. Don't know how many, but some. And then you've got Romans. You've, they're, they're non-Jewish. They're Gentile. And here's what's so brilliant. Paul uses the terms... Paul uses the term sons and children. All right? For Jews who had grown up with the law and the prophets, they knew the language of the Old Testament where God will call Israel not just generically His children. He'll call them very specifically His sons. In fact, there's a, there's a passage in Hosea that's quoted in Matthew... It's talking about the Exodus when when the Israelites came out of Egypt. And it says in Hosea that out of Egypt I called my son. It means all the people of God, all all the Israelites, men and women. So that's how it would land with them. But for Romans, if you didn't grow up with the Law and the Prophets, you may not know those stories so well. Maybe you learned them later. But you knew about adoption in a Roman legal system. And in a Roman legal system... If you were adopted, number one, you really became a family member. You really became the child of those parents. But this, this is what's amazing. As, as I have been taught, not, I'm not, I'm not a um, classical scholar, but, but those who are have pointed out that in Roman adoption, a natural-born child could lose an inheritance. If you shame the family, you could lose the inheritance an adopted child legally could not. And to these Romans, 
living under Roman law, he says, God adopted you. Now that you're his son, now that you're his child, who are your siblings? Well, all the other adopted children, but there's the great capital S sibling, great capital B brother, the son, the son of God. Look in verse 17. It says that we're children of God, verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In other words, if you become God's child, you're Christ's sibling. And Hebrew says that. It says that he is our elder brother. It even says he's not, ooh, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. Now that's great, but it gets even better. Because, all right, so that means what he gets as God's son, his inheritance, the fellow heirs get the same inheritance. What does Jesus inherit in the end? Like $25,000 and some old books? The cosmos. He inherits everything. He inherits not just everything we're killing ourselves to have and hang on to. He inherits everything. But it gets better. Because let me ask you this. Is, I mean, you've got really, to think deeply here. Is what we really want in the end that we are fellow owners of the, of the universe and so that we just kind of look around and we don't sin anymore and we finally go, awesome. Total vacation for the rest of eternity. Well, that, I mean, the prospect of that is pretty fantastic right now. But is the great inheritance the things? When it says the heir of God, that doesn't just mean to be the recipient of an inheritance from God. It means to inherit Him. And I'll tell you something, whether, even if I don't know you, I'll tell you something that I know about you, and this is because you and I are human beings. We want something that early Christians called the beatific vision. The beatific vision is finally, at the end, to see the face of God and to know that He loves you. It's to have... That was humanity's beginning. God made Adam, He formed him, and He breathed life into him, and humanity came into existence before the face of God. He lost it. It left this impression inside of us that we want it back. You know, what you and I really want, and whether we try to get at this through whatever, music, vacation, extreme sports, sex, food and drink, whatever. What we want is to be like this filament in a, in a, in a light bulb. And we want the bliss of the Trinity to run through us till we light up. And it's not light that we produce from our own. It's the bliss of the Trinity, but we just shine with what He has within Himself and that we're participating in. And 
Paul says Christians, the getting of that is already assured, but the experiencing of that you will have. Fellow heirs with Christ, the night before Jesus died, he prayed, I want to go back to that Father. He has. We will. So what do we do? Uh, do you know the name John MacArthur? He's a pastor in California, been one for decades, writer, started a seminary, um, just had a, had a long faithful ministry. And I, I heard John MacArthur give a, a, someone else's testimony, and he talked about his experience with the man who was his college football coach. John MacArthur played football in college. And he got word from his coach's brother, this is when his coach is in, in his 80s, that, uh, this, that his former coach had had a very extreme heart surgery, extremely serious, and it, was, it, it wasn't certain whether or not he would make it. And, um, and his brother that called John MacArthur was a Christian and said, would you just go talk to him? And John MacArthur had shared the gospel with his coach uh, 50 years earlier. When he played for him, he said one time on a flight, he really, really went through the gospel with him, and, and the coach was always deferential and appreciative for it, but he said no to it because he wanted what he wanted. He wanted to, you know, live his life. So uh, has never been converted, never been a Christian. He's, he's in his 80s. No one becomes a Christian in their 80s, right? So John MacArthur walks into the hospital room and just said, he is just, he said, his coach was hooked up to more tubes and machines than anybody he'd ever seen. He's a pastor. He sees this all the time. But he was just hooked up to stuff. And the, um, the, the hospital staff said he has not opened his eyes or spoken in three days. So don't expect much. And, and uh, MacArthur said, we'll see what happens. So they said he could only get so close because of all this equipment. So he got up as close as he could get. And he said, hey, coach, it's Johnny Mack. He went by Johnny Mack, apparently, in, uh, in college. And his coach opened his eyes immediately. And he looked over at him, and you could tell he knew exactly who he was. And John MacArthur said, Coach, you are the thief on the cross. You almost have no time left. This is your time now to stop your rebellion and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and own him and receive salvation. I only met John MacArthur one time. That is how he communicates. It is the most forthright, straightforward communication style. It's not angry, but it's just boom. So, walks in there, boom. And uh, his coach nodded. He couldn't talk. He had in a trach and had something else in his mouth, and he nodded. And so he reaches over and he said, just at 80, after surgery, just strong grip, just grabbed John MacArthur. And MacArthur led him in prayer, and he wordlessly professed faith. Goes back to visit him a few days later, and, um, and they, he's apparently made some improvement. They have him sitting up in this chair, still hooked up to stuff. And he's got this clipboard with letters on it because he still can't talk. But, but I mean, he said it's hilarious. He's a, he's a football coach, and he's after surgery, still carrying a clipboard around. So he's sitting, sitting in his chair, and there are all these letters, and he would point to letters to, to communicate. And so when MacArthur came in, he, he got that clipboard, and he starts pointing to letters. And John MacArthur said he was really interested what the message would be because he wanted to know what's in his heart. 
Like, did he just pray this to kind of maybe make me feel better about him not doing well, but, but does he mean it? And his coach spelled out, what can I do for our Lord Jesus Christ? And, I mean, as if that wasn't great enough, I love this. John MacArthur said, Coach, the Lord Jesus is just fine. Instead of you doing for him right now, why don't you let him do for you? And that sounds easy. That's so hard. 30 years into being a Christian now, it's so hard for me. You know, at the beginning of Romans and at the end of Romans, Paul calls Christians saints. What is a saint? Is a saint someone who has done great things for God? That's how we typically understand saints. That's not how the New Testament understands saints. A saint is someone for whom God has done great things. I'm a minister of the gospel. I want to preach the gospel to you. Is the gospel what you and I do? Is the gospel what you and I have done? The good news is what God has done for us. You know, you, you may be the person this morning, and you are the thief on the cross. And as a church, something that we, I, I think I can say with integrity, we do not manipulate and we don't do pressured presentations of anything. We, I, you know, we can't make you do anything. This is not manipulation. This is what the New Testament says. Today is the day of salvation. No one is promised tomorrow. We're not even promised this afternoon. Today is the day of salvation. Have you been saved? Because I'm not asking, have you done all these great things for God? I'm asking, have you looked to Him and said, do these things for me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do these things for me. He loves sinners. He does not love sin. But, and this is the great mystery, but He just loves sinners. And He loves the most frail cry for help and salvation. You may be here and you're a Christian. Um, be honest. Do you walk around wondering if you're in trouble? If these things don't get into our hearts, and they get into our hearts by hearing them and reading them and saying them to one another and singing them and meditating on them for the rest of our lives. But if these things don't get down, deep down in our hearts where we really are, then I just will tell you from experience, here's how it goes. You always wonder if you're in trouble. And you always wonder when God is going to call you up to the front of the class and embarrass you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have done everything. Um, let me end with this. I, this is a book that... Uh, it's a biography of a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones in, in uh, the first 40 years of his life. This book had a big impact on me. But I want to read you just one story and I'm done. This is his first pastor. At this point, he's younger than I am. And... He's in this crummy little Welsh town, kind of a dying town. And his church just really experiences life and renewal. 
from preaching the things that we're talking about. And so one night at a prayer meeting, this wasn't Sunday night, it was a weeknight, he, he asked a, a man who was really new to spiritual things, he stood up, probably in, might have been an illiterate man, a lot of minors who had never been to school in that town, and he, he, he raised the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Now this is hilarious because Dr. Lloyd-Jones answered the way I would have, and if you think I'm being cocky, wait, because you can hear what the right answer was. Uh, what is a Christian? And Dr. Lord Jones said, to define a Christian would take all through the night and all through tomorrow and all through the next night. I, that's what I would have said. But to the surprise of the whole gathering, a woman who was never known to speak at that fellowship, who later died of cancer, rose, rose to declare, Doctor, a Christian is the heir of salvation, the purchase of God, the born of His Spirit, the washed in his blood. She's quoting an old hymn. This is my story. This is my... Those are lyrics from that song. So she stands up and like in... I mean, if, if, Dr. Lord jo- jo- if Dr. Lord Jones had been Jack Black, he would have said, nailed it. Here's what a Christian is. And Dr. Lord Jones said, those who can say, I am the heir of salvation, get up and thank God in just a few words. And the prayer meeting just went on for hours. A saint is not someone who's done great things for God. We'll talk about some doing next week, but a saint is not someone who has done great things for God. A saint is someone for whom the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have done great things. Amen. Let's pray. Father, take your word now and drive it deep down into our hearts where either we still want to rebel against you or we want you but we also want our old way of life and we want to try to earn our way into you liking us. Take your word and drive it deep in our hearts, the good news. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.